Hello, everybody, and back by what I would call excruciating demand is my second episode of For What It's Worth podcast. I had literally two people reach out in response to the first episode, both of whom didn't really like it. So that's why I'm doing it again and why I'm going to continue to do it and why I'm going to continue to talk about subjects that people probably don't want to talk about, but things that I find interesting. And again, before I go any further, I just want to preface this. I'm an expert on almost nothing. Maybe I'm an expert on being an expert at nothing, and uh, I certainly don't have any of the answers, but I have a lot of questions. And I think if you ever get to the point in your life where you stop asking questions, you're already dead. So let's move forward. Today I've got six topics to talk about. Uh, Some of these are going to be really quick, and others are going to be much more in-depth and agonizing and painful. The first project or first thing I want to talk about is the Homeless Backpack Project. And I want you to go to www.homelessbackpack.net. This is a project based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, that is uh, completed and being built and undertaken and, and uh, developed and deployed for several years by my good friend, uh, David Goldberg, who is an awesome dude. If you ever got a chance to meet him, he's had one of the most interesting lives of anybody I've ever met. He's also teaching me how to play guitar, et cetera, et cetera. I've known him now for about 12 years. And David spends a lot of his time trying to figure out how to help other people, which I find a very rare thing indeed. But it's also very awesome to be around. So a few years ago, he developed a thing called the Homeless Backpack Project where he gets bags from people who don't use them anymore, kits them out, kits out a very specific kind of bag, which you can determine from his website. He has a video telling you what works and what doesn't. And photographers, oddly enough, we all have a bag fixation, right? So we all have more bags than we can possibly use. So the reason I'm telling you about this is if you have extra bags you're not using, send them to him. Or if you're looking for a place to donate at the end of the year, this is a good place. You don't have to donate a ton. It doesn't require a ton of money to, to deploy this program. But in essence, there's a after 2008, we saw a homeless explosion in the United States. And a lot of people who are homeless these days... It's a very fine line. So you see a lot of people who are homeless that 10 years ago you probably would not have seen. Um, You know, in the homeless population, obviously there's issues with mental mental health and drug addiction and things like that. Historically, that's always been the case. But to these days, we have a very different breed of homeless person. And they have very specific requirements in terms of their packs and how they have to, uh, to exist and get around. And so David has figured a lot of this out, and he's been deploying these backpacks for a long time. And so for you photographers out there who don't have ba- or you have bags that you're not using, just think about making a donation to him and the, pro- and the program. And if you don't have a bag, then if you look, and again, you're looking to make a donation, then this might be something you might not have known about. So I just wanted to bring your attention to it. Okay, point number two in this amazing podcast is I want to talk about enlightenment. Now, when I say the word enlightenment, uh, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? Normally, when I say the word enlightenment, people... Think about like Tibet and uh, movies like Seven Years in Tibet and, you know, sitting in lotus position and levitating and all these different things, which are all cool things if you can do them. But uh, I realized that my definition and my understanding of enlightenment has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. And I think that enlightenment is a completely and utterly real thing and that it's possible for every single person on the planet. And this is nothing new. I mean, there's other people that believe this as well. And I think that everything you have that you need to be enlightened is already inside you. You just have to find it. And one of the things that I think about when I think about enlightenment today is the idea of knowledge and wisdom. And I think in some weird way, that to me is the quickest and easiest and most direct step towards enlightenment is to educate yourself, gain knowledge, gain wisdom. 
and, and I'm not talking about, you know, glowing and being able to levitate and all these different things. I'm just talking about a way of peacefully navigating the world where you almost are giving yourself an advantage simply by educating yourself. And I think a lot of times when we go through, let's say we take the United States, for example, if you're from a middle-class family, you end up going to high school. Many of us end up going to college, whether it's a community college or four-year school or whatever. Sometimes people get a master's or a PhD. But most of the time when people get out of school, they just st- their education just stops, right? You get into a job, you have a family, you buy a house, you buy a car, you're sort of in that routine. And oftentimes people stop educating themselves. And I think it's absolutely crazy because if you only go through life with what you learn in school— you're really putting yourself behind the eight ball because there's just so much more out there. I just finished my 54th book of the year or 53rd book of the year, and I am frustrated because I didn't read more this year, and it's just an endless supply. Reading is a free education. And I think what reading does is it allows you to have an educated opinion about a multitude of topics. Yesterday I met with a photographer in L.A. He's a famous guy. He's been a photographer for a long, long time. And what was really interesting to me was not only talking about photography and books and things like that, but it was his range of knowledge. He had an interest in so many different things, and I was immediately drawn to having a conversation with him because he could speak to a lot more than photography and books. We talked about the earth. We talked about comets. We talked about ancient civilizations, all these different things. And I was like, oh, cool. Here's a guy that, you know, isn't just pressing the button for a living. He's educating himself in a variety of, of ways. On the flip side, I had a conversation over the holidays where I was, you know, with someone and I was just, uh, it was the opposite scenario where kind of had all these opinions and based on things that may or may not have been even remotely accurate. And I was like, hmm, that's, that's kind of interesting. And so that to me, I'm curious what your opinion is in regards to this idea of wisdom and knowledge leading to enlightenment, because I think it's available to all of us. And again, maybe this is not a religious enlightenment or a spiritual enlightenment. I have no idea. But anyway, that's my path that I'm on, and I can say after spending the last three years or four years of my life trying to read as much as possible, it has definitely, definitely been beneficial in more ways than I can stress. Okay, point number three, my life in cameras. Um, for every geek out there, and for every normal person, there's a thousand geeks, right? Just hoarding up, massing up like Vikings ready to attack. So I was thinking about this the other day. In the grand scheme of equipment and gear, I would put myself in the middle ground. I know a lot of photographers who have used a lot less equipment than I, than I have. Many of them are older, and they got into a certain genre, and they never had to change because their genre was healthy their entire career. And so, you know, maybe you look at a Magnum photographer that committed to Leica years ago, and then that's all they had to use. So I, didn't, I wasn't that fortunate. I had to jump from genre to genre, newspaper, magazine, fashion, commercial, advertising, all these different things, and I required a lot of equipment. But the, real, the, first, the first camera that, that and I'm going to do these basically sequentially, and I'll go through them fast and back up, Nikon N2020, Nikon FM2, Nikon FE2, F3, F4, EOS1, EOS A2E, Leica M4P, Leica M6, Holga, Fuji 6x9, Pentax 645, Pentax 67, 4x5 pinhole, Olympus OM4Ti, Yashica half frame, X-Pan, Hasselblad, Leica M4, Fuji X-T2, Nikon FM3T, and Nikon F-something, FM, no, F3, high, high point, whatever. Okay, in essence, I'm leaving some things out, but that's sort of the backbone of my life in cameras. The N2020 was weird, and I frankly have no idea how I got this camera. Oh, I left one out, Ricoh. The first camera I ever really shot a serious picture on was a Ricoh something that I found in a closet at our home. 
and that's what got me a scholarship to be a photographer. I shot a couple of pictures that someone saw in the journalism department at a school, and they said, hey, do you want to be a photographer? That's how the whole stupid thing got started. But the N2020 was this weird, weird camera. And I remember walking around my neighborhood trying to take pictures with this thing. And I lived in the country. There was, like, nothing to photograph other than, like, a paved street, a stop sign, and some trees. I thought I was a genius. Anyway, that sort of got me into the photo thing. And then a friend of my dad's was a photographer at the Dallas Times-Herald when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And he had retired as a photographer, but he had this bag of Nikon FE2s, and they were just sitting there, and he handed me this bag. And when I reached out to grab it, he ripped it out of my hands, and he said, in a very Texas way, Son, don't stand in the North 40 and shoot pictures of something in the South 40. And what he meant was, you got to get close. And that was a great piece of advice. So I borrowed that equipment for a long time and gave it back. That led to me buying a Nikon FM2, which is, to this day, one of the best cameras you can ever get your hands on. That led to an F3 also a great camera that led to an f4 which was a piece of shit at the time that just broke non-stop and which is what uh, led me to the canon eos one which was the original canon badass ultra high-end autofocus camera that just took nikon and wrung their neck and hung them out to dry i mean they canon got 80 percent market share in like 18 months this thing was a badass camera that led to the eos a2e which was not quite as professional, but it was a great, great camera. I loved that camera. The first Leica I ever bought was at San Antonio Camera Exchange. I bought a Leica M4P and a 28 millimeter. My father wanted me to be an investment banker. And so he, when I was in high school, he uh, pulled me aside. He goes, I'm going to put some money in an account and I'm going to teach you how to invest. And I was like, great, go ahead, put that money in there, buddy. No problem. And it was a tiny amount of money. And so the day that I got access to it, I withdrew the entire amount and I drove to San Antonio Camera Exchange, and I bought a Leica M4P and a 28mm. And my father was pissed, but he was like, ah, oh, shit, this photo thing is actually for real. Okay, that led to me buying a Leica M6. And then the next generation of my life was when I was working full-time as a photographer, but I was shooting a lot of digital. But I, And so I had this bevy of film cameras on the side that I was doing all kinds of projects with. Holga, Fuji 6.9, Pentax 645, Pentax 6.7, 4x5 pinhole, Olympus OM4Ti. That was just a mix of stuff, X-Pan, and the next sort of generation that I landed on that was really important to me was the Hasselblad, and the Hasselblad changed my photo career for sure, changed my life, uh, probably had more success with that camera than any camera I've ever used, and then to continue on, the next Leica I got was the M4, which is my current camera, that's the all-time favorite camera I've ever had, it's the best camera I've ever had, uh, there, it's just a perfect beast, a perfect machine. In terms of uh, digital, which you have noticed, I have left out almost entirely because for the first 15 years of my digital life, there is no camera that stands out. They were shit. They were total shit. And like there's a 10 to 15 year history of photography that is made on shit cameras. So if you go back, this is like the Kodak DCS 520, DCS 560. These were 15 and $30,000 cameras. And then you have the Canon 10D, 20D, 30D. You know, it just went on and on and on, and they were garbage. And so um, I didn't mention any of those. The only digital camera that makes this list is the Fuji X-T2, which I love and still have. I was going to sell them and upgrade, and I was like, what the, what, what's the point? I hardly ever use them. They're fine. They work great. I also, at this time, I still have a Nikon FM3T, which is a titanium-bodied, basically, FM2. It is a badass camera that's tiny. 
super lightweight and almost indestructible. And I've got a Zeiss 50 millimeter lens for that thing, which is the, which is the tits, as some people would say. It's it's a it's a great thing. I also have an, a mint condition Nikon F3 high eye point with a removable finder. That's also an equally badass camera. I really like those. I hardly ever use them. I'm primarily an F, uh, the Fuji user now. Digital just sort of suits the lifestyle and the timing and what I need cameras for. But anyway, that in essence is my life in cameras. I have left out a bevy of cameras, but that, that's about it. Now, if you think this is a lot, I know people that have four times the amount of cameras on this list, and they, have, they own two to three of each. And I'm not even talking about four fives and eight by tens and panoramics, and it's insane. Some people just go absolutely insane overboard. All right, got that off my chest. Moving on to point four, and this is going to infuriate everybody who thought this was a cool podcast until now, but I want to get back to politics just for just for a minute because something interesting happened. I was kind of watching what was happening with the shutdown, you know, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, okay, if I was going to come up with words to describe, in general, our political apparatus, what would they be? And the words I came up with were old, white, isolated, wealthy, and prone to influence, prone to being influenced. Because Americans refuse to believe that we're as corrupt as China, Russia, Venezuela, Mexico. We are. We, it just looks different. And my thought was, wow, you know, the system doesn't really work right, right? So why wouldn't we change it? And revolution is a word that never gets used in America because people think it's impossible, and it probably is. But, you know, to me, I don't look at it as a revolution. I look at it as looking around and saying, hey, this doesn't seem to work like the way we thought it does. And, you know, these people are compromised way beyond the health of the system. So how do we change it? And most of the time when I bring this up with people, they go, well, it's, there's nothing we can do. And they just give up. And I'm like, that's the, that's the least American perspective I've ever heard in my life. We don't give up. Right? We never have. We just we, we keep getting up. We keep trying to make things better. And so it's hard to complain about the system and then not do anything about it. And so I was talking to my sister, and my sister is the polar opposite politically than I am. So she introduces me when we meet people. She'll go, Here's, this is my brother. He's a liberal atheist. That's literally the first thing she says. Even though I'm an independent, she thinks that I'm a liberal. So She's on the polar opposite side of the spectrum, and that's her prerogative, and hey, I'm not here to change her opinion. She can believe whatever she wants, which is the same way I feel about you. And I said to her yesterday, I was like, hey, does the government work like you think it should? And before I could even finish the sentence, she goes, absolutely not. You know, not even close. And I said, I totally agree. You know, what do you think we should do? And she's like, oh, we should really try to change it, like figure out a way to update it and make it better. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's perfect. And another name that came up was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's the, uh, this, the, the, you know, the newbie to our, to our government system who's been getting a lot of publicity. And, and she's a lightning rod. You have people that just absolutely detest her, and then you have people who think like she's going to walk on water. And so to me, she's an interesting cog in the wheel because she scares everybody. And my thought from day one was that she's going to get cannibalized by her own party because she scares the shit out of people because she's threatening the establishment on both parties. So like the government shutdown happens and she's like, great, shut the government down, but you guys shouldn't get paid. And all you heard was crickets of like people like, oh, uh, you know, oh, that's not possible. We can't do that. I think that she'll get cannibalized by her own party because she's a threat. And the establishment doesn't want things to change. They don't want updates. They don't want limits on lobbying. They don't want any of that because they're in power. If I was in power, maybe I'd feel the same way. But anyway, um, this is an interesting time, and I think uh, I'll leave it at that. But I think we need to revamp our system, and we have to find a way to do it. I don't know why, why we wouldn't because I'm not, I don't find many people that go, oh, yeah, it works great. So why wouldn't we fix it? 
All right, next up is immigration, which is a super interesting topic to me. It's actually part of one of the photo essays I'm working on right now, which is not a straightforward uh, essay about immigration because there's a lot of other people doing that way better than I would ever be able to do, but it's a teeny part of a much broader story that I'm working on, which is on the New Mexico Mexico border, and which has been a human migration path literally since the beginning of humans walking the earth. So... There was never a border there until you know pretty recent recent times. But um, anyway, we need a border policy. We currently don't really have a border policy, <clears throat> and uh, we don't also don't have a general public who understands immigration, or more importantly, our public doesn't understand <clears throat> the role of Latin labor in the United States, which is all over the place. And I mean, growing up on a ranch and being around ranching, you realize that the labor force is in huge part made up of um, Latin Americans. And so, and your, you know, food service and construction and uh, agriculture and all these different things where, you know, I have people in my family that are like, we got to get rid of anyone that's not, you know, white and an American. And I'm like, wow, your entire system would collapse if you did that. And you just have no idea because they don't connect the dots. They're not in, they're not in agricultural fields seeing how things are being collected. They're not watching construction sites. They're not, they don't look into the kitchen at restaurants and say, oh, wow, there's a, you know, pretty significant Latin labor force. They just assume that it's, it's just not that way. So it's a weird thing. But again, it's a tricky, super complicated story that there is no clear answer for. The one point I want to bring up that's interesting is how many of the people railing about immigration have ever been to the border. Now, for whatever reason, I love borders. I always have. And if I, when I think border, I think of cities like Tangier. And if you've never been to Tangier, it's unbelievable, you know, where you have co- massive continental connections and cultural connections or clashes. The Mexican-American, the U.S.-Mexican border is just a fascinating place. I have been going there repeatedly since 1989, and I've been everywhere from sort of the Brownsville area in Texas, all Nuevo Laredo. I've been through the areas over by Big Bend. I've been all along the New Mexican border, all along the Arizona border, all along the California border. I've had good times and bad times. Borders always bring out the highs and lows of cultural differences and politics and and, uh, and immigration, and, mi- and more importantly, migration. And so I think it's fascinating, and I would love for more people to go and actually see the border, because I think it would change a lot of people's minds about what's actually happening down there. Not that the problems are going to go away. And here's the way I look at it. Like, I love Mexican people. I always have. Uh, when you go into Mexico, whether you're on the border or you're deep inside the, the country itself, the people are just, to me, are, are gems. I mean, they are really fantastic people who, will, who are the salt of the earth that will give you the shirt off their back. Um, and I've been in situations in Mexico where I needed somebody's shirt, and it was, like, you know, readily handed to me. So I love the Mexican people. Um, but Mexico has a lot of problems, has a lot of issues, you know. And I look at the situation, and I think— how do we help Mexico fix the problems uh, of that are happening in the country? And and I understand a lot, that rankles a lot of people because a lot of people say, well, I don't care what's happening in Mexico. But to me, it's just something that we have to take a step back and you have to go, okay, maybe as a for the good of the whole, I got to take a step back and like collectively try to understand this. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to actually visit the border. It's awesome. And if you're a photographer, any photographer who's reading this, who's ever been to the border will be like, Oh, yeah, it is fantastico. Okay, Um, last point is I think Apple is really in trouble. Um, So I was with someone yesterday who has a brand new MacBook Pro, and the person I was with yesterday is just a, a stream and a long line of people that I know that have the new MacBook Pros. 
And the number of problems with that machine are so off the chart. It is, in some cases, it's unusable. So you're talking a three to $3,500 laptop that has so many inherent problems, it is basically unusable. And I'm not joking or exaggerating, literally unusable. And I'm still using a 2015 laptop because the new ones are so, uh, they're so flawed in so many ways. And I just look around and I'm like, wow, this is, they just went so far in the wrong direction. And to watch someone using a new MacBook Pro with four dongles hanging out of this thing just to do what they basically need to do to be an, to be an imaging professional, I'm like, how on earth did they go this far off? And what someone made a very good point to me was they said, look, Apple no longer cares about creatives. They care about the public. And so it's just to appease the public. So the fact that your computer gets so hot that it kicks in this weird CPU thing that drains the CPU because it's trying to keep the thing cool and doesn't work with your power supply. I mean, you're just sitting there thinking, this can't be real. This can't be happening. But it is. And I've just seen it over and over and over again, which worries me because competition is good. You want everybody to make good stuff. So it forces them to make better equipment. Same thing for cameras. And so the one thing that I have of Apple that I still really like is the iPad Pro. Now, if you're a maker, I wouldn't buy an iPad unless you're like an artist and you just use apps like Procreate where it's awesome. But if you blog or you shoot or whatever, they're, they're kind of useless. I would definitely go with a PC like a tablet or a Microsoft Surface or something that has actual ports and desktop versions of the software and better processing power. And it's just a better machine. Um, but the iPad Pro, I actually still really like. It's for whatever reason, it fits a really interesting niche in what I do. There's a couple of different blog series I do for Blurb that I specifically use the iPad Pro for. I do a lot of the writing that I'm doing now on the iPad. It's smaller than my laptop. It's easier to carry around. I do like the touchscreen. Um, but it's still, it's the, the it, what it's best at is just consuming stuff. So if you're watching Netflix, you're on a plane, whatever, it works really well. I don't think I would ever use a regular iPad. The pen is huge. It makes such a a big difference in what this product is. And if you haven't used one and but you're thinking, out it, thinking about it, it really is a cool tool to have. Now, having said that, the battery's already going to shit, basically. It just started a couple of, a couple of days ago where it, it's not holding a charge like it once was. It go, burns through a full charge in absolutely no time. Um, my, my iPhone, which is probably six months old, it's starting to do the same thing, even though the battery status thing tells me it's still at 98% capacity. I do not believe that for a second which is why I have an external battery pack for the phone because I have to use it every single day. Um, again, the battery thing with Apple, it's nothing new. You guys are probably all experiencing similar stuff. Now, having said that, I'm a, probably a heavy user because I'm on the road so much. Um, but what this has all led me to, to believe, and the thing is, I love this stuff and I hate this stuff. So I love how cool it is, but I hate that I have to sit in front of it all day long. And what I realized a couple of days ago, actually the day after Christmas, so I'd been away from the computer for basically two days, right? Which doesn't seem like anything. It's not anything in the grand scheme. But in my life or the person who's in my role in life, uh, it is very much a rarity to be away from a screen for that amount of time because it is like unbridled chaos, digital chaos all day long every day from every direction with you know laptop, iPad, phone, just nonstop. So the day after Christmas, I walk into my office and I see the computer from across the room and I just had this sense of like dread. And I looked and I thought, man, I just don't want to live my life in front of a screen anymore. I know it's going to have to be a part of my life, but I don't want it to be as significant as it has been. 
it just, it's weird. It, it affects how I interface with the real world because when I spend so much time in front of a screen, it's in, it's, first of all, it's impacted my vision, which is now completely screwed. I need glasses for up close and for far away because I've been staring at the same distance for so long. But also it's how the elements of the earth, air, wind, sun, you know, whatever, rain, impact my body. I, I feel like a foreigner in the world. I, it takes me a few days of being in the natural world to be able to get back on my footing and, and get my, my gearing back to interface with the world, how I step, how I run, how my eyes work, all of these different things because I've been so artificial by sitting in front of a screen. So I have no idea how I'm going to remedy this. I don't. I have zero idea. All I know is I need to remedy it. So I've got to figure out a way to fix, fix this. And I have no idea. So if you have any suggestions other than winning the lottery, quitting, maybe getting going, going back to the enlightenment thing and maybe just hovering for, for a living, I don't know. Anyway, that's it for today. That is the extent of, for what it's worth, six wonderfully beautiful topics that I'm sure everyone will be just chomping at the bit to write me comments on. Um, but again, I don't do this to build a following. I never have. If I did, I would never post, I would probably wouldn't post 95% of what I post. Uh, I would just be posting shit like, 10 tips for keeping your drone safe in inclement weather and just all the shit nonsense posts that we see over and over and over again. Those build following amazingly well. And I totally get why people do that and why people have donated their life to falsity and being phony because they want to build a following. I guess it's because I don't need to build a following that I don't do it, but also because I just have no interest in that. The topics that I cover here and what I post and what I talk about, these are just like stuff, everyday stuff that I'm bouncing around. I don't share everything here because I can't. I can't be too truthful here because it would hurt too many people that I know and it would crush the industry and probably not do me, make me any friends out there. Um, and I don't really want to do that. I think there's enough negative stuff in the world. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about neuroplasticity. So if you don't know what neuroplasticity is, you should do, do a little research up front because I think this is a really interesting concept and one that I'm trying to engage a little bit more with, understand more, and see if I can use it to my advantage. That's your homework. For the one person out there who's probably in prison and stuck and maybe the channel's locked on this one podcasting channel and they can't change it, for that person out there, that's your homework, is neuroplasticity. For the rest of you, I'm sure you left a long time ago. And now I am going to join you. See you next week.